Well, as you're returning to your seats, I encourage you to open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 4, focusing our attention on verses 12 through 13 of Hebrews chapter 4. Know thyself. It's a maxim that goes all the way back to the ancient Greeks, a little bit of wisdom. It's an injunction to understand who you are and why you act in the way that you do. Centuries later, reformer John Calvin would begin his systematic theology, the Institutes of the Christian Religion, with this heading, without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. Calvin would go on to say in that section, For what man in all the world would not gladly remain as he is? What man does not remain as he is, so long as he does not know himself? That is, while content with his own gifts, and either ignorant or unmindful of his own misery. What Calvin is saying is that we naturally live this life blind to who we truly are. And without thinking about it, we continue in those self-destructive, sinful habits that lead to our own misery. The way that we apply this truth around our home is we say to one another, as people are getting under our skin or annoying us, people are effortlessly themselves. The person who annoys you with his thoughtless words is not usually trying to annoy you. He is being himself without reflection upon his own actions. The same is true for your relatives that continue to act in ways that hurt your feelings. Much of the time, they are merely acting out of habit, not considering or maybe unable to consider how their actions are affecting others others. They have no knowledge of self, and with no knowledge of self, they continue to bring hardship and misery to others and to themselves. And because we are sinners by nature, without reflection, without effort, we continually sin. Because it takes no effort to be yourself, but to know yourself. Now that would be great indeed. The Bible tells us much about the blindness we have concerning ourselves. In Jeremiah 17, we learn the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jesus tells us that out of the heart come evil thoughts and murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Over the past several weeks, we have focused on the call not to harden our hearts in unbelief as the Israelites did on the edge of the promised land. But the question that we are left with is, how do we know the heart? How do we know if the heart truly believes? How are we to see the truth of our own hearts? If the heart is deceitful, if the heart is hardened, if from the heart flows false witness... If it leads us astray, then how are we to know ourselves? And if we do not know ourselves, how can we know and believe the promise of the gospel? 
For Calvin's declaration that we must know ourselves to know God is rooted in the same line of thought as reflected here in the book of Hebrews. Namely, we must know the reality of our heart if we are to believe the gospel with the heart. And what we'll see in our passage for this morning is that if we would know the heart, then we must not look inward to a lying heart, but rather we must look outward to the true Word of God. For it is in the Word of God that the reality of our hearts will be known. It's in this dynamic, dividing, and discerning Word of God that we will come to truly know ourselves. So here now, the Word of the Lord, Hebrews chapter. I'll begin in verse 11 and read through verse 13. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This is God's holy word for us as people. Let us pray. Almighty God, as we come to your living and active word this morning, we pray that you would use it to pierce to the very division of soul and of spirit, and that by your word, Lord, that you would discern the thoughts and intentions of our hearts, and that as we are exposed before you and before the light of your word, that we might come to know ourselves and that we might come to know you. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. The first thing that we see in our text about this word is that if we would know the truth of our hearts, then we must look to the dynamic word of God. The dynamic word of God. Look again at verse 12 where it says, the word of God is living and active. The Word of God is not like any other book in all of the world. For the Bible is not merely words just printed on a page. Rather, the living and active Word of God is what we have before us. Now, what does the author mean when he says that the Word is living and active? Well, first, the Word of God is living. Earlier in Hebrews, we learn that God Himself is the living God. And now we see that His Word is living. And this means that it is personal. Theologian John Frame explains the living nature of God's Word in this way. He says, when we encounter the Word of God, we encounter God. His Word indeed is His personal presence. Whenever God's Word is spoken, read, or heard, God Himself is there. You see, God is not merely a concept. He's not a philosophical ideal. God is alive. And as such, the Word that He speaks to us is alive. 
When we read a book about, say, Winston Churchill, we may learn a lot about the man and his times. If we read Augustine's Confessions, his autobiography of how he came to faith, we might get a sense of who this man was and how the Lord worked in his life. However, when we read the Word of God, we are not merely learning about God, but rather, in the Bible, we are encountering the living God Himself. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, as we hear the Word of God, we come into the very presence of God. He is speaking to us, a living God, speaking to us in His living Word, revealing to us the truth of who we are. Second, the Word of God is active. It has power. It accomplishes purposes. The book of Isaiah chapter 55 puts it this way, For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Now, I'm not a chemist, so if I say something wrong in this uh, illustration, you chemists out there can uh, come and correct me later. I'll get it right in the 11 o'clock service. (laughs) But in chemistry, there are gases that are called inert gases. And that means that they are chemically stable and therefore do not react with other substances. These gases include things like helium and neon and argon, and they are often used in industrial applications because they don't lead to corrosion like oxygen, which leads to oxidation or rusting. Now, why this little chemistry lesson? Well, often we think of God's Word as though it were inert. It's non-reactive. But what we see in our text is that the Word of God is not inert. It works. It is active. You can't just assume that they are dead words on a page because as His Word goes forth and as you read it and as you listen to it, it begins to work within your heart and within your soul. It's accomplishing a goal. It's hammering away at the hardness of your heart. And it's working within you faith in God. And when we take these two realities together, we come to see and to know the reality of our hearts that we must look to the dynamic Word of God. Because by the Word of God, God is present and God is working on our hearts. You see, our hearts are hard. They're hidden. They are darkened by sin. But when the Word of God is spoken, His personal presence and power come to bear upon our lives. A light is shown into the darkness, and we come to see the reality of who we are. Rosaria Butterfield was a tenured literature professor at Syracuse University. And she explains that she began a project to understand why it is that Christians stood against the practice of homosexuality. 
Being a practicing lesbian herself and a literature expert, she thought that she would be the perfect person to endeavor on this path. And so she went to the written source of Christian thought, the Bible. As she tells the story, she was very serious in her study of the Bible. She says, And so I embarked on reading the Bible the same way that I would read any book reading whole sections at a time and spending uninterrupted hours doing so. But something began to happen as she read God's Word. It was not inert. It was dynamic. It was changing her heart. It was revealing the truth of who she was and her need for a Savior. She explains, quote, After my second or third or maybe fourth pass through the entire Bible, something started to happen. The Bible got bigger inside me than I was. And it absolutely overflowed into my world. I really fought against it. And then one Sunday morning, no different than any other Sunday morning, I rose from the bed of my lesbian lover and an hour later I sat in a pew at the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. I went there very conspicuous of the fact that I didn't fit in, but I really had to confront this God. You see, the Word of God is living and active. And those who go to the Word will not leave unchanged. Rather, God will work His purposes within them. As he did within Rosaria, who was graciously and miraculously born anew by the word of God and who is now a voice of exhortation to the church to stand for biblical sexuality, to open our homes to the most unlikely of converts and to read the living and active word of God. Christian, if you would know the state of your heart, you must go to God's word. For it will not leave you the way that you are, but will work within you and will accomplish its purposes. Now the next thing that we see about the Word of God is that if we would know our hearts, we must go to God's dividing Word. Verse 12 again, the Word of God is living and active. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. Now the type of sword that the author has in mind here is not the broad swords of the 17th century or the claymore swords of the 15th century. Rather, it was the relatively short Roman sword called the gladius. And the gladius was designed to be used by Roman foot soldiers in close contact combat. And its double edge was meant to pierce the armor of their opponents, right? It wasn't made to hack, but to pierce. It wasn't made to lop off limbs, but to penetrate into vital organs. And here we see that this is exactly how the author uses this image. The word of God is like a gladius piercing to bring about division, to penetrate the armor of our hardened hearts and to separate out. Throughout the Bible, the words soul and spirit are used interchangeably most often to speak of the inner life. However, the few times when they are used together, the difference between soul and spirit is something along the lines of 
the difference between emotions and intellect. The word pierces and it divides down to the very basics of who we are so that we can know the reality of our hearts. Another way of expressing what the author is saying here is that the Word of God is judging and separating. When the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed, it will make a division between those who believe and those who do not believe. This is the dividing line of eternity. On one side, there will be those who believe, and on the other, those who do not believe. The Apostle Paul describes the dividing power of the Word of God in this way. He says, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Okay, so he's using this analogy that the gospel is like an aroma. It has a smell to it. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, to other, a fragrance from life to life. As the gospel is proclaimed, as the word of God is read and listened to, it will either smell of life or of death. To those who are being saved, the gospel is the best news that has ever been spoken. And to those who are perishing, it is foolishness, or even worse, it is condemnation. And if you would know your heart, if you would know whether you believe or not, then you must go to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Does it smell of life or of death? When you hear the word of God calling you to repent of your sin, do you submit in humility or do you stiffen your neck in pride? When you hear that Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience, do you trust in His righteousness or do you scoff at His holiness? When you hear that Jesus was a propitiation for sin, that He endured the just wrath of God and the eternal torments of hell upon the cross, do you believe that because of His sacrifice you have been forgiven of your sin or do you jeer that God committed divine child abuse? When you hear that Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, does that make your heart rejoice in the new creation one for us? Or is it folly and a stumbling block? When you hear that Jesus is coming again to judge the living and the dead, does that make you long for the day of His return? Or does it make you hate the God who would give to some everlasting damnation to some everlasting joy? The Word of God is a dividing line. It divides the heart of men down to the very joints and marrow. And those who love and trust the Gospel, it's dividing them unto life. And those who reject and hate the Gospel, it is dividing them unto death. But we are to be comforted, Christian. For I know that there are many who worry about their salvation. As we have gone through Hebrews 3 and 4 and the call to persevere, there are those who have emailed me and have asked, how do I know if I'm saved? But God in His sovereignty and providence 
work salvation in your heart such that all who desire salvation in Christ are His children. And every child of hell will go there cursing God in eternal rebellion, hating the presence of God and the Gospel of Christ. How do you know if your heart believes the Gospel? Go to the Word of God. Read it. Listen to it. Meditate on it. It is sharper than any blade on earth and it will divide between those who believe and those who do not. You see, to know the truth of our hearts, we must look to God's dynamic Word because it accomplishes His purposes. We must look to His dividing Word because it will reveal if we believe or not. And the final thing we see in our text is that we must look to His discerning Word because it reveals what is hidden in our hearts. Look at middle of verse 12 into 13. It says that the Word of God piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. You see, as this piercing sword, the Word of God searches our will and our desires. And there is nothing so deeply hidden that the Word of God cannot find it out. Even when you don't understand what you are thinking or what you are feeling, or why it is that you act in the way that you do. The Word of God knows your heart, and it will discern and see why it is that you act and think the way that you do. The Word of God will discern our intentions and will lay them bare. Undergoing a financial audit is a time-consuming and difficult process. But it's a needed one for any organization. It's important to see where your money is going and to make sure that it's being spent wisely. However, anyone who has undergone a full audit knows it can be a little disturbing to have somebody go through all your financial records and ask you, why did you spend your money on that? Why is it that your money is being directed in this direction and not this direction? Nevertheless, the long-term financial well-being of an institution is important and therefore you must have accountability on multiple levels. It's uncomfortable to open up and let somebody see everything that you're doing, but it's important. But who or what can know the heart of man? What can do a true audit on your intentions and your thoughts? What can open up the reality behind the actions of your lives? We can build for ourselves walls of self-righteousness, making excuses for why we act the way that we do so that we can remain the way that we are and yet never truly understand ourselves. Why is it that I continue to find myself in stressful situations? Might it be a heart that is given to impatience? Why is it that I continue to fall into addiction after addiction? Could it be a heart that is pursuing satisfaction in the world and not in God? Why is it that I never have enough money? 
Could it be that my heart is serving money and not God? Why is it that I am continually upset with and finding fault in the people that I profess to love? Could it be that I have a self-righteous and judgmental heart? Why is it that I'm continually having secret meetings with people to discuss sensitive information? Could it be that I have a heart that loves gossip? You see, the Word of God will lay bare your sin. God knows the intention behind your thoughts and your actions. And if you would know yourself and if you would be delivered from the misery and the hardship and the struggle that you bring into this life, then you must go to the Word of God. Because there the reality of the intentions of the heart will be laid bare. And it will act as a mirror exposing the reality of who you are and will bring to you the relief, the answer to how your heart might go from stone to flesh. When the Pharisee Nicodemus came to Jesus under the cover of night, he inquired of the gospel. And in the most famous of responses, Jesus said in John 3.16 and following, God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. This is what the author to the Hebrews has been saying. To be saved, to receive the rest remaining, to enter into the promised land, to have eternal life, we must believe in the Son of God. Of God. If we believe, then we are saved through Him, and if we do not believe, we are condemned. We must trust in Jesus Christ. But how do we evaluate if our hearts believe or not? If the heart is deceitful, if the heart lies to us, how do we know if it believes in Jesus? Or if it's just going along to get along? Outwardly saying that you believe, but inwardly still spiritually dead. Well, Jesus goes on in John chapter 3. He says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. You see, when the light of God's Word shines into your heart, when you look to the dynamic, dividing, the discerning Word of God, do you run from it? Or are you drawn to it? Do you believe it? Or do you hide from it? My call as a pastor, is to take the light of the Word of God each week and to shine it as directly as possible into your heart to expose the reality of who you are. To take the sword of the Spirit and to thrust it into the very division of joint and marrow. 
so that those who are of Christ might rejoice and run to the light and those who are not, that they might see the reality of their heart and they might come to Christ. And this is how you know if you believe. Do you come to the light or hide from it? For those who are in Christ love the light. Know thyself. Calvin not only says that we must have a knowledge of self to know God, but conversely, the next section, he says that we must know God if we will truly know ourselves. For we will consider ourselves righteous and wise and merciful until we lift our eyes to the Lord and to His Word. And there we will see the true standard of godliness and repent of our vain glory. It is only in the light of God flowing from His Word that we will come to see our need for Christ and learn to trust in Him alone for life everlasting. And therefore, if you would know yourself, then you must look to the light of the Gospel, and in knowing the Gospel, you will come to know God. And through knowing God, you will come to know yourself truly. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Oh, Father God, we come to you now at this time, and we thank you for your living and active word. We thank you that you shine the light of your word into the darkness of our hearts. Lord, and we thank You that You have changed our hearts and You have caused us to love Your Word. I pray for all who are here, Lord, that have heard Your Word preached this morning, that love Your Word and trust in Christ, that they would be encouraged, that they would be strengthened. Lord, and I pray for those who do not know You. For those who have been deceiving themselves. For those whose hearts remain hard and have no knowledge of self but continue to walk in the destructiveness of sin and the misery that it brings. Oh God, would You mercifully bring them to the light. Open their eyes, we pray, O oh God. Divide to the very division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, that they may see the reality of their unbelieving hearts and through the power of Your Spirit repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in His name that we do pray this. Amen.